in everybody and find a seat. We will get started. And you need notes. And so uh, if you brought back the notes you were given last week, then that'll work because we'll be going through those today and for the next few weeks. So keep bringing that packet back with you. Pages 16 to 32, I think, is the latest we gave out. And we're going to be on page 19 today. Anybody not have a set of notes with you? Because we do, the guys do have some. They're fetching some. Anybody need? Everybody has? Terrific. Wonderful. All right, we'll be on page 19. I do want to remind you of some things that are coming up. We mentioned them during the first hour. Perhaps you weren't uh, in the first hour or you weren't listening in the first hour, just in case. Here's what's going on. So this coming Saturday, a couple of things are happening. The Newcomer's Brunch at our house, and we would love to have you come if you've never been to one of our brunches, so consider yourself a newcomer if you've never been to one of our brunches. 10 o'clock this coming Saturday, but we do need to know today who is coming, so register. You go to our website, you go to our app, you can register for that. And then also Saturday from 11 to 4, there is a Pioneer Club day camp, and so for our kids that are in Pioneer Club, uh, there is that, and you need to register for it though. Again, that's Saturday. Also, Saturday night, technically Sunday morning, is fall back for daylight saving time, and that uh, begins. And so, yeah, daylight saving time ends or begins? It ends. Okay, thanks. And it's daylight saving, not savings. (laughs) Daylight saving time. And so you gain an hour of sleep, but you'll need to, uh, uh, so we fall back on, on that. Two weeks from today is our next baptism, five in the afternoon on the 14th. Uh, You need to today turn in your one-page baptism application if you're looking to be considered for baptism. So please, uh, please do that. You can pick up the application at the Welcome Center desk and you can turn it in there. You should do that before you before you leave today. I'll get with you. We'll talk, and we'll we'll go from there. On December the third, that's a Friday, is the annual Ladies Christmas Social. And for that, ladies need table hosts, so you can go on our website, you can register to be a table host. And if you're not going to be a table host, just register to say you're coming, and then you can be assigned to one of the, one of the tables. So I think that'll cover it for what's uh, coming up for now. So just be aware of those items. We are in our series, Identity Crisis, you see on the front cover of the notes that you have, and then in the upper right-hand corner, it says, Identity Crisis, who does God say I really am? And today, at the top of page 19, you see it says that annoying voice in your head. So you didn't know you had voices, but, but you do. And I know you do because I do. We, we all do. I want to talk about that for a minute before we get into the notes themselves. In order to think about yourself properly, you need to talk to yourself properly. In order to think about yourself properly, you need to talk to yourself properly. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because the psalmist pretty much says it in Psalm number 42, Psalm number 42. And here's what Psalm 42 does. The psalmist in Psalm 42 and verse 5 turns out is talking to himself and asks himself a question. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? So there you've got an example of the psalmist in Scripture 
talking to himself and asking himself, why am I doing this? Why am I so downcast? Why am I so disturbed internally within me? So the psalmist has this internal kind of conversation and thankfully comes up with the answer. Why am I so downcast? Why am I so disturbed internally? The answer apparently is, based on what's said next that I'll read, the answer apparently is because I'm too focused on me. Because the next line says this, put your hope in God. For I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. So there's this internal conversation. Why am I downcast? Why am I so disturbed internally? Oh, I know why. Because I'm too focused on me and what I have going on. And the answer then is, I'm going to put my hope in God. I'm going to look outside of me. And I'm going to look to you. That's Psalm 42. Then in Psalm 43, same thing. Verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. So when I say, you know, we've all got that annoying voice in our our head. The psalmist did. You do, I do. And so I say, based upon Psalm 42 and 43, if you show me a downcast person, I will show you a self-focused person. Now you say, boy, that sounds like a harsh thing to say to somebody who's already downcast. But I'm not, I'm not saying selfish, but I, but I am saying too self-focused, just like the, the psalmist was, and as we are all wont to be. And what I mean by that then, the self-focused idea, is that our constant thoughts are about ourselves, are about our situations, are about our misery. And the irony is, The more I focus on that, the more miserable I become. So I have this internal thing and I'm thinking to myself about me and I'm thinking about my situation. And that's why I believe it's good to counsel the downcast, to both look upward and to look outward rather than inward. What's the psalmist do? Look up. Instead of continuing to look in, look up. Look up first, foremost. Look to God. Look to the Lord. Look to who He is. Look to what you have in Him. But then also look outward. Look outward to other people. I often assign people who are in this situation, I assign them service projects. Do stuff for other people. Get involved in the lives of other people so that you're taking your eyes and your mind and your focus off of yourself. To put it another way, this has become popular. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who coined this. But the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. In fact, one way to think of this whole dynamic of You know, I'm focused on myself and I'm thinking constantly about what's going on with me and I don't like what's going on with me and so I'm downcast and I'm internally disturbed. So look upward, look outward rather than continuing to look inward. 
But one way to think about this is you, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself rather than listen to yourself. See, too many of us listen to ourselves rather than talk properly to ourselves. That's why I started out by saying in order to think about yourself properly, you need to talk to yourself properly. Otherwise, if you're not talking to yourself properly, if you're not preaching the gospel to yourself, if you're not telling yourself regularly the truth, then what you're doing is listening to yourself. And very often, what we tell ourselves is not good. You have to preach the gospel to your to yourself rather than listen to yourself. I mean, think about this, friends. What if we could, and we're probably coming up on a day where we could do this, you know, if you wanted to technologically, you know, you put some kind of thing on everybody's head and you can transcribe your thoughts and they show up on the screen. Anybody volunteering for that? <laughs> Transcribing your thoughts and they, and they show up on the screen. Now, here's the, here's the thing. You got, you got, I'm not trying to be unkind, I've got, so I'll clue myself in. So we got such a junkyard going on in our heads. Such a jumbled mess of stuff. Thinking about ourselves on a regular basis. It's embarrassing, really. Now, the only thing that keeps it from being really embarrassing is that we lie about it. You know, remember last week I said, you know, the person you're seeing is not really me. It's my representative. <laughs> it's who I want you to think I it's who I want you to think I am. And that's the truth for most of us. Most of us, what we see is not completely what you get. If we really knew what was going on in each other's hearts, in our minds. And it's it's a bit of a junkyard. Up there, if we could transcribe that and you put it up there, and you'd all we'd all be embarrassed, and you'd go, "Oh, I'd die! I'd absolutely die if people know what I was thinking." Hey, does anybody know what you're thinking? You know what? It does show how horizontally focused we are, doesn't it? That we would die if any of us knew what we were thinking, when all the while vertically, God knows every piece of it, and and that doesn't. But that doesn't seem to bother us as much. Isn't that weird? That ought to bother us infinitely more. So you've got to learn, I've got to learn to talk to myself rather than listen to myself. And in talking to myself, I need to preach the gospel to myself. What do we mean by that? Well, you know, with the gospel, you've got to ask yourselves, we've got to ask ourselves some just elementary, foundational, crucial questions. They start with, who is God? So when we say preach the gospel to yourself, it can be just sort of a slogan. It's kind of a more current Christian slogan. But let's make it more than that. It's not just a slogan. It's asking yourself, who is God? Regularly asking yourself and then answering, who is God? And if you go to, say, a decent church that teaches you about God, you might have some answers to that. Or you'd know where to get them. And you can reflect upon that. You can use the Bible term. You can meditate upon that. Who is God? Rather than this complete inward internal focus. Outward, well, upward and outward. Who is God? And then further, who is Christ? Who is the Messiah, the, the anointed one? And what has he done and why has he come? 
That's preaching the gospel to yourself, but it starts with ask concretely, who is God? Who is Christ? And then who am I in Christ? Remember in the early lessons in the series, we talked about some of those fancy theological terms and how those have practical import for us. The fact that I am justified declared righteous before God, the fact that I'm adopted into His family, the fact that I've been regenerated, the fact that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. We, we looked at those and the practical significance of those for us. So preaching the gospel to yourself, who is God? Who is Christ? Who am I in Christ? You know, you do that and still, none of us wants to have our thoughts transcribed and put up there, you know, but at least be less embarrassing. In the words of that great theologian, Gordon Lightfoot, some of you are old enough for that, if you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts would tell. But God can read your mind. And your mind matters. And what you say to yourself really, really matters. So let's see some examples of people who are listening to themselves rather than preaching the gospel to themselves. We've got to preach to ourselves because other voices are coming at us regularly. Top of page 19, Stacy is a single woman who struggles with her relationships with men. She desires their attention which can frequently result in impure thoughts, deeds, and disappointment when she learns the source of the attraction is purely sexual. Nick continues to battle his attraction to pornography. Despite turning to Christ in college, getting married, and becoming a father, the pull of his sin seems as strong as ever. Despite exposure to sound gospel teaching, both Stacy and Nick are struggling in their Christian walk. Each morning starts with hope, but then life's interactions take place. Godly Intentions quickly unravel and they find themselves responding like their pre-regenerate selves. Understanding in three areas are needed to help them gain traction against besetting sin. The process of sin, examining inner conversations that go on, helping to simplify their identity. So let's remind ourselves of what the Bible says about the process of sin. Most Christians recognize sinful behaviors are the fruit of an evil heart but may not fully understand the four-step process described by James in James chapter 1. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth a death. So here's that four-step process. The first one is you are lured. You're tempted by something. Part of the human experience is to have a soul that hungers for satisfaction, and we naturally, in our nature, our sin nature, look for delight apart from God, which is lust or idolatry. So again, like I said last week, when we say lust here, we're not talking about just sexual lust, we're just talking about intense desire for whatever or whomever. And that intense desire, even for a good thing, if it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idolatrous thing. As Christians, we are new creations. We have a new spirit, but our fallen flesh, and again, I think I said last week, flesh here is not your physical body, but the sin nature. 
Our fallen sin nature remains a magnet for the temptations that life brings. From our individual experiences, rebellious hearts, and fleshly formed thinking patterns, we each have our particular bent of desire. Usually it's a self-focused desire or a skewed or preferred variation of a good gift, like desiring security or intimacy or community or love or sex and so on. These are all gifts from God, but gifts from God that have been twisted, have been distorted. They become this ultimate and therefore idolatrous thing. So that's why we call it a besetting sin. Back in the third paragraph, the last understanding in three areas are needed to help gain traction against besetting sin. So that comes from the King James language in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And Hebrews 12 says that we, if we are going to run the race, we have to run the race looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then it tells us in the King James to lay aside every sin that besets us. The besetting sin, that's where we get that from, then, from the King James. In the NIV, it says, laying aside every, the sin that entangles. And what's interesting about that passage to me is that it is the sin that entangles, the sin with a definite article. And I, in studying the book of Hebrews, I did a series on the book of Hebrews years ago, and in looking at that passage, I'm convinced that it's actually referring to a particular sin. It's not that everybody has a particular besetting sin, I'll explain in a minute, but that there is a sin that gives rise to these particularities that draw us away. And what is that sin? If you read through the book of Hebrews, if you get the storyline on the book of Hebrews, that sin is unbelief. The sin that so easily entangles is boiled down to unbelief. Because every time you sin, you are failing to believe something about God, about Christ, about yourself that the Bible says. Every time you sin, you are faithless in some way. Remember, faith, believe are the same thing. So faithless, that is unbelief. Otherwise, I wouldn't sin. I wouldn't go after something, some lesser thing, right? If I believed properly about God. If I believed properly about God, then that thing or that person, that allurement would not have hold an enticement for me. So you have the sin. Now you also then struggle, like I do then, with believing the right stuff regularly. Believing the right stuff about God, about Christ, about ourselves. And that's why you want to preach the gospel to yourself and you want to say, who is God? Remind yourself, who is Christ? Who am I in Christ? Because this besetting sin is unbelief. Lack of faith. In God, in Christ. In the promises that He has about who I am. But in addition to that, you have a particular personality. So that unbelief is channeled a particular way. So if you want to call that the besetting sin, yeah, I, I agree. You know, you got yours, I got mine. I may have more than you, it doesn't matter. 
but I've got buttons that can be pushed. You've got different buttons that can be pushed. And my unbelief, our unbelief, manifests itself, displays itself in different ways because of that. You've got different things that you idolize. I've got different things that I idolize. Because that's the case then. My temptations, the things that tempt me, are going to be different than the things that tempt you. But this thing right here, step number one, that you're lured because you have a particular bent of intense desire is true for every one of us. And if I bite on that bait, it's because I don't believe in some respect. So the temptation is there externally put before you. And then step two, bottom of page 19, you're enticed by the desire. One temptation, once temptation arrives on the scene, a spiritual battle ensues. To complement James' analogy of childbirth, this is when the romancing of the evil act takes place. The promise of satisfaction is highlighted and the expected consequences are minimized. The bait just looks too good to pass up. Do you guys see unbelief all over that? This thing is promising you something. You believe it. You believe it's a lie. Not believing God, not believing what God says to do with this, you believe the thing or you believe the person, you believe the voice. So what happens? Top of page 20, conception. Sin conception happens when the fleshly desire captures the heart. It's only a matter of time before the actual act follows. So, let me ask you, do, do, people, do people just snap gen generally? I'm just going to talk generally. You know, does, does a kid walk in? I think I used this illustration a couple weeks ago, and it's difficult to think about, but bear with me. But does a kid just walk into a school and just shoot up their classmates and teachers? Like overnight? What's been happening there? There's been this process this process of thinking, this process of desiring whatever that you're not getting. I want popularity. I want the girl. I'm not popular with the girls. I, want to be on the, I wanted to be on the team. I can't make the team. I'm not popular. Nobody. And so, and just, why is my life this way? Why are they treating me this way? One after another, one after another. It's capturing the, captures the heart. And it's only a matter of time before some act follows. Thank God it's not that act most of the time, but some act. You know, instead of shooting people up, you just in your mind have killed a bunch of people on the way to work who got in your way in traffic. I mean, in traffic, we, us, we Christians, can be a bunch of mass murderers behind the wheel. I mean, think about how ticked you get. Think about how upset you get. It's our own version of that. At this point, an individual becomes hard-hearted, characterized by an inability to discern spiritual reality. Hardened by sin is spiritual blindness at its worst. The hard heart takes action toward the evil desire. The individual is ready to plunge into apathetic and unmoved by the resulting consequences. So, yeah, I don't... I've never had anybody 
tell me, Pastor, I'm getting a divorce. And I say, you have biblical grounds for that? And they say, well, I've got my grounds. And I say, that's not what I ask you, biblical grounds. Can you help me with that? Because when you joined, when you, when you came to Jesus, you said, I commit to following you in obedience all of my life. When you joined our church, you said that. It says that on our membership application, by the way. And you answer yes. So I've never had anybody come and tell me that who hasn't been down this road for a long period of time. That didn't just, that didn't just happen. It's happened because you've been, you've been thinking about it. You've allowed yourself to chew on that. And now you're willing to plunge into it. And then I, you know, I say, hey, can you help me with that? Where's the, where's it say in the Bible? And pastor, I don't care what you say. I go, cool. Do you care what Jesus says? Because I didn't really ask you to follow me. You said you'd follow Jesus. So what does he say about it? Do you care about that? And I've actually challenged people. <laughs> you gonna, can you verbalize that? Can you say that out loud? Jesus, I don't care what you say. But isn't that what's happening? And that's what's happening in that instance. That's a stark and public instance that becomes known because it involves the courts and it involves families and all of that. But then there's all the things that go on that we never know among each other where we do that very thing. And so it's ruminated, it's developed, it's conceived. And then the fourth step is sin. The sin that's been incubating comes to fruition, manifesting its deadly intention. All right, so that's how it goes. That's how it goes for you. That's how it goes for me. How do I arrest it? Believe. The, you have your particular manifestations of your unbelief. The way to arrest it for every one of us is to believe again. That means, so remind yourself, who is God? Who is Christ? Who am I in Christ? Keep coming back to that. So let's return now to Stacy and Nick. To help our friends, we have to look for ways to break the process of sin before conception. God gives you practical ways to battle temptation in the earliest stages of the process through either limitation or amputation, that is get away from it, get away from the temptations. You know, if you've got a drinking problem, then don't drive by the party store on the way home from work. Drive a different way, is what that's saying. In essence, this requires radical steps to remove ourselves from situations that present the temptations. The enticement stage is the battle for your mind. As a Christian, you're called to renew your thinking patterns like I've been saying, but what does that look like? How does right thinking incapacitate the process of sin? To find the answer, you have to explore the role of your internal conversation. The internal conversation is the one that takes place in your head that never seems to run out of stuff to say. It involves a mixture of desires of conscience and knowledge as they're contoured influenced and shaped by the Spirit, but also the sin nature, seeking to manipulate and incline us one way or another. 
This conversation contains a combination of facts and opinions, and in many ways it reflects a TV talk show or broadcast of a sporting event. One voice presents the facts or asks the questions. A second voice provides commentary and analysis. The first voice is the play-by-play announcer. The second is the color commentator. And you got this going on in your head, so do I. Usually the play-by-play announcer voice is not the problem. Spiritual enlightenment has occurred, and scripturally well-informed, play-by-play, our voice can provide biblical insight to the live-streamed events of our lives. The voice that gives most Christian problems is the color commentary. That's where the deception of the mind takes place. If left unchecked, the color commentator often works to get your mind off of Christ and onto self-sufficient and often sinful solutions to gain satisfaction. So here's Stacy. The play-by-play announcer says, stopping to get some coffee. Oh, look, a nice-looking man is working behind the counter. All right, that's just objective. It's just factual. We're okay so far. Play-by-play. Color commentator says, I wonder if he thinks I'm cute. Let's just see if he gives me that second look. Come on, check me out. Play-by-play announcer. Nope. Now helping another female customer with big curves. Color commentator says, what makes me think he would check me out? I don't have the body guys want. I'll never be loved. So here, the color commentator romanced Stacy with the bait of male attention. She wants to be attractive, desirable, a woman worthy of being noticed by the opposite sex. She wants to be accepted, protected, loved by a man. In her Adamic brokenness, her thinking and past gains connect to her physical beauty and sex. Now, read that sentence again. In her Adamic brokenness, that is, she's messed up because she's a daughter of Adam. She's sinful, and that sinfulness shows up. And then it says her thinking and past gains. So she regularly associates herself with things that have fond memories for her, that gained her something. You know, maybe when she was little, everybody told her how cute she was, and she continued to. But then as she got older, people weren't telling her, but she still wanted to hear how cute she was and how people looked at her and all of that. She associates this as, this is a gain to her. It's a profit to her. And she's connecting it to physical beauty and, and sex. Or maybe she's just listened to the voices that are in the media. You know, and Facebook has told her on purpose, as we saw from the whistleblower who's come out in the last with all the documentation about how on purpose they have caused in particular young girls to see themselves in particular ways and to be depressed about themselves. Eating disorders and all kinds of things that flow from it. So in her Adamic brokenness and the fact that she's a daughter of Adam and therefore is is messed up, at least in some ways like all of us are, her thinking and past gains connect to physical beauty and sex. This disappointment can tempt her towards sexual desire. That's Stacy. Here's Nick. Play by play. I didn't get the promotion. That's just factual. Now, at that moment, I didn't get the promotion. So far, it's just the facts. Now, Nick can deal with that a bunch of different ways. And depending on who he's listening to, who's doing the talking, will determine how he deals with it. Color commentary, so unfair. 
So much for that Disney vacation or helping out with the church building project. The play-by-play announcer, there are your co-workers, Carol and Diana, walking up ahead. Remember, lusting's a sin. But the color commentary for Nick says, you know what, I deserve a little pick-me-up. How can I not check out those curves? So which one do I think is more attractive? What if they were wearing bikinis? You say, nobody thinks that way. Let's put the thing on and let it go around with you, fellows, in particular, all week. Let's see what we come up with on the transcription. Again, the color commentator was able to shift Nick's focus to worldly things and to arouse sexual desires. He wants to be a successful manager and a married father, a godly husband. In short, he wants to be good at everything he values. In his Adamic nature as a son of Adam, his past gains, the things that he considers worthwhile and profitable, connect to his performance in school and by gaining attention from females. With this event now, his sin nature is fed, this not getting the promotion, and lures him to respond to the job disappointment by escaping into his fantasy world. So these kinds of conversations go on all the time. There's the facts and how I respond to the facts. And how I respond to the facts are, what's my color commentary saying? They help illustrate how internal discussions remain worldly. The dialogue remains unregenerate. The old nemeses of legalism, self-sufficiency, and self-righteousness enter into the conversation more or less undetected. Redeemed thinking requires more than biblical knowledge. Most of the time, it mandates that you fire the color commentary. So you've got to start thinking different. You need a different color commentator. You don't need a different play-by-play. Your play-by-play is going to happen. It's going to... It's your life. It's just stuff that comes at you, and we all got it, and it's a mixture of good and bad and ugly. That's the play-by-play, and you can look at it, and you can say, I didn't get the promotion, and I'm disappointed about that, and whatever it was, or there's a cute guy behind the counter. You can, all of that, but now it's, what do I do with it? How do I respond to it? Your color commentary is the fruit of your identity. The point was made earlier that desires metamorphosis into your identity. For Stacy and Nick, their identity was not in Christ, but a complex mix of the many micro-identities rooted in themselves. Additionally, you see a connection between their identity and the internal commentary of their color commentator. What captures the interest and concern of their color commentator are their purpose and position, namely their identity. Your interpretations of the events in your life are deeply dependent on your goal and what you believe you deserve. As a result, your internal commentary becomes clouded by the alliance of your false identity to your false identities. An unchecked color commentator is the Achilles heel of your internal conversation, leading you away from simply resting in Christ. Robert Burns said, top of page 22, Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. For Stacy and Nick to gain traction in their Christian life, they must recognize and shed their many false competing identities and simply find rest in their new in Christ identity. This lasting change will only occur with the employment of a new color commentator. So, 
a better one. One of the more substantial blessings of being regenerate, that is being spiritually alive because God has graciously given that to you, is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Through this beautiful union, you now have the mind of Christ, which is the color commentator that you need to put in play. It doesn't come without considerable investment of time and effort. You cannot know God's mind unless you have His heart and spirit, unless you share in His character. Your task is that the character of Christ transforms your color commentary through Scripture reading, memorization, and prayer to change your color commentator's character. You must recognize the waywardness of everything about you, stripping away the deceptive workings of the sin nature until only your in-Christ identity remains. Careful, honest, gospel self-examination of your functional identity should bring you to recognize I'm more broken than I ever imagined, which exposes a troubling level of depravity in my heart and creates in me a desperate dependence on Christ. I am more broken than I ever imagined. I'm more messed up than I ever imagined. I'm more messed up than you realize. You're more messed up than I realize. None of us are more messed up than God realizes. If we, could come to, if we could come to recognize that, see, then we can make some progress. Okay, I, I got lots of stuff that needs to change. And the fact that I show up at church and I look the part through my representative doesn't mean that I've got it together. I don't have it together. And so I need, you need, to go through this process. And it shows up, man, every day of your life, and it shows up multiple times in your life that the color commentary is happening. Why did they say that to me? In the, why, did, why did they make that comment in the hallway? Why did pastor say that to me? I wonder if he was thinking, and then your mind starts going. I wonder if they were thinking, and then your mind starts going. Right? And then you start to draw conclusions, and then you start to get down on them, and you start to get down on yourself, and then it's all color commentary. You're doing it all the time. So in this, it is in this context, the process of reading the Bible, meditating, memorizing Scripture, and praying that can profoundly transform the character of your color commentator. So simple identity in Christ. As a Christian, you are in the lifelong battle of seeing past the workings of your sin nature, counting all gains as a loss. All of that stuff that I find profit in from the past, I need to evaluate and say, really, why do I want that? Why do I need to change my Facebook profile picture multiple times? And let everybody know. Why when I look at a picture in a group, I know where your eye goes when you look at a group picture. To the same place mine goes. Man, you are fatter than I thought you were. That would be looking at me. And you look at it and you go, and so some of you go, I can't get my picture taken. I can't even get my picture taken. It's so traumatic for me to have to look at myself. 
Why? Because I've got this idea about it. Because this is what's profitable to me. This is what I value, how I look. And then that has ripple effects. And I'm not just picking on people that have that issue because we've all got our own issue and issues. So it's a lifelong battle of seeing past the workings of your sin nature, counting all of that stuff, that lesser stuff as loss, and becoming more humble in your own eyes, more weaned from self, more fixed on Him as you're all in all. Gospel simplicity is the only way to find freedom from the trappings of the sin nature. So here's Stacy and Nick. If they're successful in stripping away the areas of spiritual complexity formed by these many self-creating micro-identities that they have in their lives, their newly created color commentator results in a new freedom in life. Stacy's color commentator can quickly remind her of the true acceptance and love she has from Christ and enable her to acknowledge her counterfeit, unsatisfying, and destructive desires for male attention. She's now free to look around the coffee shop and find another single woman who looks like they could use a friend. With news of the promotion, Nick can decisively find comfort in God's flawlessly ordained plan. He could remember if if he had heard that detours in your life are not a change in God's plan. They are God's plan. His biblically informed, gospel-motivated color commentator reminds him that God withholds no good thing. Did you know that? God withholds no good thing from His people. And the things that from our perspective are bad, God has His good purpose for. God withholds no good thing, so His focus can turn outward Endeavoring, notice what I said a while ago, now no longer introspective, but you're looking upward and outward. You say, okay, where do I get the injection for the new color commentator? Where do I get the whiffle dust that creates the new color commentator? But we've been honest with you here, it, that takes work. That takes prayer. That takes meditation. That takes time. You're really, you guys are really wise because you're sitting here right now. You're you're showing wisdom because you need to be here. You need to be taught. I need to be taught. You need to be reminded regularly because you're going to go out in the world we're going to dismiss in just a bit. You're going to go out in the world and you've got all the junk facing you. You need all the reminder you can get, don't you? You need all the fortification you can get. I encourage you to avail yourself of every opportunity that you have to learn of God. To learn of God through learning by the example of godly people. Being with them. Being in a group it would be really cool if you went to a church that had groups that met on, say, Sunday nights. I'll just throw it out there, first and third. What a great idea. And then you'd be around these people and you'd be able to discuss the stuff and you'd be able to pray and you'd see how they handle problems. I'll just end with this. 
If you stay off in your own little world, you're dead. You don't don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one by myself. We do it together. We do it regularly. But you do that over time, you're now finding yourself thinking differently, depending on different things, finding your value in other things, more worthy things, namely Christ-honoring things. All right, page 34, or excuse me, 24, we'll pick up. Transform arguments redemptively. We'll see how that plays out with this identity issue next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We do thank you, Lord, that we're here. I thank you for the wisdom of these brothers and sisters who are here who want to learn how to redirect our thoughts and our hearts and cultivate our hearts so that the color commentary of our lives is from the voice of our God, it's from the voice of our Redeemer, rather than from the world, rather than from the things that we had in the past that we thought were of most value and that we still find ourselves pursuing. Help us, Lord, to see the inferiority of everything compared to the Lord Jesus and to want Him and to want to be shaped by Him and to image Him, be conformed to the image of Christ more than anything else. And therefore, we will take advantage of every opportunity to have our thinking reshaped and challenged. Lord, I pray as a result of doing that, that in a month's time, we find ourselves thinking differently, responding to the play-by-play of our lives differently. I pray even this week, Lord, help us to just, in some circumstance, every person here think of some circumstance where they allow it to grip them and allow their thoughts to go in Christ-dishonoring ways and harmful ways to them. Think of that one thing and redirect their thoughts toward you. Help us this week, Lord, to, to cease looking inward, to look upward and outward. May it make a difference, even this week. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.